Good morning. Let's turn to Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter, so it's easy to find. It's just before Revelation. Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Very powerful one-chapter book. Of course, when we talk about these books in the New Testament, most of them are actually letters, sometimes referred to as epistles. And so obviously, these New Testament letters, books, were written to believers to instruct believers. But God's Word is powerful. It's alive. It's active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And uh, many people have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ simply by sitting down and reading the Bible because it's a supernatural book. And the words contained within the book are God's words, and they have the power to change lives. Amen? So, Last week we began this message, we only got halfway through because we had communion, we had a special time prayer for healing. So we started last week, the title of the message was and is, Creepy Men, because in verse 4, Jude writes, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. Crept in where? Into the church, into the body of Christ. And so, based upon what Jude is telling us here, I labeled them creepy men. But I'm going to read through this passage again, the same one that we read through last week, beginning in verse 4, up through verse 7. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though, you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would just uh, open our hearts and minds to this passage of Scripture. Give us insight and understanding from your Holy Spirit. Help us to be totally open-hearted and open-minded. Lord, we live in a day and age where there is so much hypersensitivity and people are so easily offended. But Lord, we need to be not easily offended. We need to be totally open to your truth. So we ask you to bless this time of study in your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just skim over the part that we covered last week. We talked about this, these certain men, these creepy men who've crept in unnoticed. One translation says, secretly slipped in among you. So it's abundantly obvious James is talking about people coming into the church Uh, pretending to be one thing when they're really another. Wolves in sheep's clothing, as the Scriptures also have identified them. Jude tells us they are godless men. So, just because they claim to be believers, 
Jude says these deceivers who have crept in, and again, we're not just talking about someone who might be in the pulpit preaching, teaching. The enemy tries to weave these people into the church and begin to sow division and discord in the body of Christ and to lead people astray. So it's a lot easier to spot someone like that when they're in the pulpit if you, if you are keeping your nose in the book, but not quite so easy sometimes when they're just part of the flock, if you will, or occupying some kind of a lesser leadership role. That's often where this happens within the sub-leadership of a church. I've, I've seen it so many times over the years. People will look for someone, not the senior pastor, but someone else in a leadership position and try to win them over to their particular point of view and turn them against the pastor and against other leaders. Godless men, and we talked about this last week, it means without a God or divine faith. So again, they're phonies, they're fake, they're not real. And as I mentioned last week, they are their own gods, they're the center of their own universe. But I don't want to recap too much here, just wanted to kind of refresh us to where we stopped. And Jude tells us that they turn the grace of our God into lewdness or a license for immorality. And again, we talked about this, the Gnosticism that Jude was addressing here, antinomianism against the law, meaning breaking the law, you don't have to follow the, law, the laws of God. I'm not talking about the Old Testament law per se, but the laws of God, the, the laws of morality and ethics and virtue. The uh, antinomianism said, spirit here, flesh here, therefore you can be a spiritual person, but since the flesh is totally distinct from the spirit, you can do whatever you want with your body, resulting in this lewdness or this immorality, and that's certainly been a trademark of many false teachers, false prophets, cult leaders, Branch Davidian, children of God, and even some of the ones that we might consider to be perhaps a little more mainstream, and yet we've seen a number of prominent preachers, pastors that have fallen into sin, immorality. I'm not saying every one of them are false prophets or false teachers. Men are frail. We are sinners. We do fall. But many of them use God or the name of God simply as a vehicle to indulge their flesh, whether it be money. They say the three great enemies of the ministry are the gold, the girls, and the glory, the three G's. And deny our only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is creeping into the church more and more. I, I saw an article on my desk I'd printed out several months ago. I was going to share it with you guys. I never did. But in the UK, United Kingdom, Great Britain, uh, 52% of Christians do not believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. 52%. Now, how does that happen? It happens because those in the pulpits are not teaching the true gospel. They're not teaching the whole counsel of God. And particularly in Great Britain and Europe, the church has become more and more liberal, but it's happening in America too. 
We spoke recently about that prominent worship leader in the Hillsong movement that renounced his faith. And then there was that writer whose name I can't remember, but he wrote a book that was very popular about 20 years ago, aimed at teenagers. It was called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. This guy was considered a prominent minister of the gospel, Christian writer. He renounced his faith. We see it happening more and more. And what happens when somebody like that gains a following and then they renounce their faith, just like we read here, deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, then that causes many others to stumble as well. Because I know one of the things that bolsters me in my faith quite often, when I think about all the great men and women of God who have gone before me, remember how John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. That's how I feel when I look back at some of the great men and women of God in the history of the church that I couldn't even walk in their shoes. I, I admire them. I appreciate them. You know, Sir Isaac Newton was a Christian. Did you know that? And many of the people that even the secular world would look at and say, that person was a genius or they were a, a great scientist or historian or what have you, we're believers. But when I think of those folks, whenever I start to, I don't know, maybe get a little discouraged or a little, that's those little shreds of doubt might start to try to creep in here and there, I think about those people and I think, no, no, no. It's all real. God is real. Jesus is real. Jesus is alive. There really is a heaven for those who believe in him and follow him. And when you start to think, gosh, maybe I'm stupid. Maybe I'm just, you know, deceived. And people will tell you that. You're just, you know, you're just a fanatic, a religious fanatic. But then you look at some of the amazing people, and even in our own day and age, we have those people as well. Although I was talking with uh, someone the other day, and this is something I've been observing for a while now. Another reason I believe we're in the last days, I don't see men and women rising up Again, there are people rising up, but I think they come under the category of creepy. I don't see... Franklin Graham is one of the few at this point. But we had the Billy Grahams, Pastor Chuck Smith, who, who never promoted himself, and therefore a lot of people don't even know who he is, but there are, there are between 1,500 and 2,000 Calvary chapels in the world today. Millions of people's lives have been impacted by the ministry of Pastor Chuck Smith in Calvary Chapel. He was a tremendous role model and example, and he taught scores and scores of young men and women how to teach the Bible, but he didn't leave out the Holy Spirit. I don't see too many of those rising up today. The ones I see rising up are not ones that I want to follow, and to me that's another sign we're in the last days, because you can look back over the history of the church, and generation after generation, God raised up these kinds of people. To be watchmen on the wall. But they're fading. Dave Hunt, gone to be with the Lord. Chuck Bissler, gone to be with the Lord. Chuck Smith, Billy Graham. And of course, we can go back into history, but I'm trying to keep it in a more contemporary framework. Even Dr. James Dobson. I read a lot of his books. I thought he had a lot of good things to say. I 
One thing about James Dobson that I always found a little disappointing, I felt he was really good at identifying problems, but I didn't feel like he was very good at giving answers. But he's a great man of God. And I think he's even been greater since he left Focus on the Family, left and became a spokesman for our, for our culture and our society. A godly man, Jerry Falwell, who's gone to be with the Lord. The list goes on and on. And I don't see that many rising up today. I see mostly charlatans. And I believe that's because we are in the last days. And the scriptures clearly teach that in the last days, there will be a great falling away. But I don't want to be a part of that, do you? We're not going to fall away, are we? We're going to stand firm in the faith. So, I couldn't find any more recent statistics, but this tells you a lot. This is from 2009, and I think, if anything, it's probably gotten worse. This is the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. This is in 2009. They reported that 37% of evangelicals rejected the claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven. 37%. I suspect it's higher now. They rejected the claim that Jesus... <laughs> when I read that article on my desk about 52% of UK Christians don't believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, you know what came out of my mouth? I was t- Do you ever talk to yourself? My, I do. <laughs> and you probably think, oh, we knew that. <laughs> I said out loud, then you're not a Christian. 52% of Christians don't believe Jesus died and rose from the dead. You're not a Christian. There's a lot of people that say, I'm a Christian. But they don't believe the things you need to believe to be a Christian. So here we have 37% of evangelicals, and they're supposed to be, in our estimation, the real deal. The evangelicals are the ones who believe in evangelizing, winning others to Christ. But if you don't believe he's the only way, what's the purpose? Right? How can you be an evangelical if you don't believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him? 52% of American Christians agreed, this is over half, I bet it's grown too, 52% of American Christians agreed that religions other than Christianity can lead to eternal life. Universalism, all paths lead to heaven, right? Again, if over half the American Christians believe this, that there are other religions besides Christianity that can, now, that sounds very nice, very inclusive, right? Very welcoming. Oh, you don't have to believe in Jesus. There's other ways to get to heaven. But if you believe that, then you can't be a Christian. 52% of Christians believe that. That means 52% of Christians aren't Christians. If you don't believe every word that comes out of the mouth of God that's been revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures then you're not a believer. You believe it all or you might as well believe none of it. You cannot pick and choose. So in this epistle, Jude, he exhibits a penchant for using groupings of three. 
He also uses Old Testament illustrations very effectively. Now, in this section that we're looking at today, he combines these two literary devices, groupings of three and Old Testament illustrations. And he gives us three examples of God's judgment from the past. The first one is the unbelieving Israelites. The second is the fallen angels. And the third is Sodom and Gomorrah. He uses these as warnings to his readers. Now, he's not writing to the false teachers and the false prophets. He's writing to the believers in the church to warn them against being seduced by these false teachers and false prophets. And he gives three examples of what happens when people go their own way, whether it be angels or human beings. Verse 5, he says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this. Now, that's interesting. We emphasize this a lot in our studies in First and Second Peter. Peter uses that word repeatedly, remind, reminded, and so forth. There's a reason why we need to be reminded, because we tend to forget. He says, you once knew this, but you get distracted, don't you, by everyday life, by the things of the world? That's why we need to be in the Scriptures on a regular basis. That's why we study the Bible here week after week, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, because we need to be constantly reminding ourselves because we're bombarded by the world, the flesh, and the devil. I want to remind you, he says, God's people need to be constantly reminded of his truths. We've talked about this before, how weeds grow so prolifically, don't they? You don't have to do anything. They just pop up. Grass takes a lot of work. You've got to feed it, water it, sometimes aerate it. There's a lot of work. Weeds require nothing. And so we have to make a conscious effort to work at cultivating the spiritual things in our lives because if we don't, what's our life going to be filled with? Weeds. It takes no effort to grow weeds. It takes a lot of effort to grow a nice lawn, a nice garden, some beautiful flowers, roses. These things take effort. So Jude says, I want to remind you, Though you once knew this, so we should never complain about being reminded, going over the same things again and again. Having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, the Lord delivered His people out of Egypt. And so this speaks of God's faithfulness to His people and to His promises. Jude's reminding them of what God has done in the past. But afterward destroyed those that did not believe. So Moses led approximately 2 million people out of Egypt, men, women, boys, girls, aliens as well, Egyptians. There was a whole entourage. But once they got near the promised land, they sent out 12 spies. 10 of the 12 gave a bad report. Oh man, there's no way, Moses. We can't take this land. There's giants out there. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're going to squash us like bugs. Only Caleb and Joshua gave a positive report, remember? Hey, we can do this, Moses. God is with us. Let's go for it. But because the majority had no faith, 
they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, an entire generation died out, destroyed, because they did not believe. Although every Israelite followed the crowd, get that? Followed the crowd out of Egypt, some proved ultimately to be unbelieving. They were non-believers. Some were even leaders. You remember a guy named Korah? He raised up a rebellion against Moses, and then the ground swallowed him up. Once again, as we've been talking about these creepy men, and it could be a woman as well, once again, the bad fruit was divisiveness, rebellion against authority, as we look at the story of Korah, Moses' authority in that particular instance, the authority of God-ordained pastors and leaders in the New Testament church, divisiveness, rebellion against authority, and self-exaltation. And an entire generation died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. So Jude's first point here is first example. If God did not hesitate to judge the ancient Israelites, why would he not also judge these false teachers and false prophets in the New Testament church and those who choose to follow them? Now, verse 6, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, I believe, as do um, quite a few other Bible scholars, I'm not calling myself a Bible scholar, but Bible scholars, teachers, theologians, many believe that this is a reference to the fallen angels whom Satan persuaded to cohabit with women in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Because of the gravity, the depravity of their sin, leaving their own abode, their proper domain, which would be in the heavenly realms, coming down to earth, procreating with these human women and producing the Nephilim, the giants of old. It's a controversial subject, but I think some of the most knowledgeable and well-studied scholars and theologians embrace this belief. As a result, they were confined immediately because of the abominable nature of their sin. And the apocryphal book of Enoch, which has become more and more prominent in these last days, it hasn't been accepted into the biblical canon, but there's a lot of very important information in the book of Enoch. It gives a a description of the fate of these fallen angels, as does Peter in his second epistle, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 6. If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, here's another example of God's judgment, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So Peter employs the same method in Second Peter as Jude does in laying out his case for the judgment of false prophets and false teachers. If you go into that passage in Second Peter, you find that Peter is talking about the very same thing that Jude is talking about. 
And he uses, again, these Old Testament examples of God's judgment. So Jude's second point here is this. If God did not hesitate to judge angelic beings who defiled and corrupted the human race, would he have any reluctance with regard to judging deceivers and false teachers who corrupt and defile his church? That's Jude's point. Verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah are the most famous, of course, but according to Jude and according to the Old Testament, all the cities in that region there by the Dead Sea were destroyed. The entire region was caught up in this sexual immorality and going after strange flesh, and I think we all know what that means. We know what took place there in Sodom. I want to make a point here. Jude says that they had given themselves over to sexual morality and gone after strange flesh. Uh, No one forced them to do it, and Jude does not indicate that they were born that way. Any more than we might say someone who uh, becomes a um, practicing fornicator, all common vernacular would be sleeping around. I suppose you could say, well, I'm sorry, I was born that way. I got a lot of testosterone. (laughs) Or someone who is a, you know, habitual thief, kleptomaniac, well, I I can't help it. You know, it runs in the family. My dad was one. My granddad was one. It's genetic. Well, you know what? All sin is genetic. Because we inherited it from Adam. I think you get the point I'm trying to make. I'm not lacking in compassion towards those who have been caught up in these alternate lifestyles and so forth. I know there are a lot of different reasons why that happens. We do have to have love and compassion for them. Hopefully we can show them the love of Christ and lead them into right relationship with God. But that's never going to happen when we compromise, when we give in, when we back down, and we begin to endorse these things as normal. That's not love. That's taking the easy way, the path of least resistance, right? I don't want to be called a homophobe or a bigot or a racist or what have you. I don't want people to hate me. And you know, in the times we're living in, it's starting to move beyond verbal abuse. It's starting to get to the point where you literally could be in physical danger if you dare to go against the popular narrative out there. We're very close to the point where people will be able to justify attacking you on the street and perhaps taking your life if you dare to say what God's Word says. Do you see that? It's absolutely true, folks. It's already happening. 
Anybody who doesn't get in line and get in step with the ungodly, worldly narrative going on today is subject to public ridicule and shame, loss of job, loss of income, loss of family, loss of friends, and potentially loss of life. Now, we've been kind of immune to all that for the last 250 years of our nation's history because this nation was founded on religious liberty and freedom, the ability to worship God according to the dictates of our own hearts and to not hide it, to be public about it, to be open about it. But as we see even more and more of the church rejecting the foundational fundamental beliefs of the church, like the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, about the fact that there's no other way to God except through Him, when it's even creeping into the church like that, you know that we're living on borrowed time. Now, I don't mean that in a negative sense because I'm looking forward to the return of Christ. And I'm looking forward to being with Him forever. But in terms of this world, this life, which you and I have been able to enjoy throughout our lives, the freedoms, the benefits, the privileges of living in this nation, arguably the greatest nation ever to exist on the face of the earth, uh, we're living on borrowed time. According to Jude, these people in Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities around the area made a conscious decision to give themselves over to the lusts of their flesh. And according to God, does God have the last say on virtually every subject, right? According to God, these activities for which Sodom and Gomorrah were judged and the other surrounding cities were immoral and perverted. Those words will get you in a lot of trouble today. But they're God's words. How can we possibly know the right path in life if we're not guided by the truth? David said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Have you ever stumbled around in the darkness? Has it ever resulted in an injury of either a minor or major magnitude? Without the word of God, without the light of his word, the truth of his word guiding us through our lives, we will be stumbling around in the dark. In fact, Jesus even said that these religious men, the Pharisees, do you know who the most dangerous people were in Jesus' day? The religious people? I'm not religious, are you? I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I told you last week, Satan loves religion. He don't like relationship, though. Jesus said that these Pharisees, these so-called godly men, what do we read here about the creepy men? They're godless. They have no God or divine faith. They believe in themselves. They're their own gods. Jesus said the Pharisees, don't follow them because it's the, like the blind leading the blind 
and you'll both fall in the ditch. Our lives, our pathway through life must be illuminated by the truth of God's Word. Has to be. Again, that doesn't mean that we hate those who do not follow the light. We are called to love them, to reach out to them, but not to engage in their activities. We cannot show them the truth unless we ourselves are walking in the truth, walking in the light. I always think back about when Jesus first called his disciples. He's walking along the Sea of Galilee. He calls uh, Peter and Andrew. They were out fishing, dropped their nets, followed Jesus. James and John, same deal, left their dad in the boat. Jesus, the way I picture it, the way I see it in the Scriptures, he's walking along the shore. He looks out and he calls these men, but he doesn't stop. He keeps going. Are you going to follow me or not? He's not going to just stand around lollygagging, waiting for you to get your act together. You either want to follow me or you don't. Now, when I say get your act together, obviously, we come to him as we are, poor, wretched, naked, and blind, but then he transforms us. We're born again. We're a new creature in Christ Jesus. So when I say get your act together, I simply mean drop your nets and follow him. Make that choice. It's a choice. It's a decision. Jude tells us that these three examples, the ancient Israelites who died in the wilderness, the fallen angels who were chained in Hades awaiting final judgment, and these folks of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. Abraham's nephew Lot was there. The Bible calls him a righteous man. Not perfect, but he was a believer in Yahweh, Jehovah God. These folks had a witness, an example in their midst of Lot and his family. My suspicion is that being the nephew of Abraham, Abe probably visited Sodom at least once or twice came to visit his nephew. I'm just speculating. But they certainly had opportunity to know about the one true God, and they willingly, knowingly chose to go in a different direction. Jude says, these are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Or... Another translation says they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And certainly, the, the Sodom and Gomorrah scenario is a graphic example of that. Genesis 19, 24, 25. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Have you ever heard the term scorched earth? This was God's scorched earth policy towards Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. 
set forth as, as an example. An example is a precedent or a former instance in a bad sense intended for caution. Basically, God is saying this is what will happen if you do that. Because of God's love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness, He gives us warnings. Has God ever given you a warning? Many times, I suspect. Do we always heed His warnings? Unfortunately, no. Hopefully, we learn from those things. Learn to listen better. God's giving the whole world warnings right now. But he also gives individuals warnings. He gives us warnings. It's up to the human race to take heed. We've had so many warnings. 911, Hurricane Katrina, those are just a couple of examples. It goes on and on and on. All over the world, earthquakes. We now have a potential pandemic, coronavirus. Warning after warning. This Sodom and Gomorrah scenario, scenario was short, nothing short of a divine Hiroshima-Nagasaki scenario from World War II where we dropped atom bombs on those two cities in Japan. The only difference is that that was over very quickly, whereas God says the punishment of the evildoers, the false teachers, the false prophets will be eternal fire. Now, I don't know if it would do any good, but those who doubt the literalness of hell and of eternal torment and punishment, I think, need to read this passage and consider what God has to say here. So once again, we find ourselves not necessarily with a warm, fuzzy message, but it's an important message. God put it in there for us to study. And again, Jude was warning believers. The people that he's warning them about, the creepy men, were the problem. And Jude was trying to protect his readers from being drawn into that destructive behavior and lifestyle, that deceptive, false belief system. It's been around since the first century of the church, it's still around today, and therefore it's just as important for us to study it, to understand it, as it was 2,000 years ago. So to recap, Jude's given us three examples of judgment. The Israelites, what was their sin? Unbelief. The fallen angels, they corrupted and defiled the human race through sexual immorality and perversion. Thirdly, the Sodomites and the Gomorrans, same thing as the fallen angels, corrupted and polluted themselves and each other by the same means. Ephesians 5.3, this is for the church also. <clears throat> but among you, Paul writes to the Ephesians, the body of Christ, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. I'm reading from the NIV here. I like this word, hint. There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Contrast this 
with a new gospel going out all over the world, certainly all across America, a new gospel, you can basically do whatever you want. It's okay. God doesn't care. Just come to church and, you know, have some lights and some smoke and loud music and, you know, some kind of a uh, power of positive thinking message. I'm okay, you're okay. But you can sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend if you want to. God doesn't care about that. You know? We're moving closer and closer to the legalization of all kinds of drugs, opioids, hallucinogenics, marijuana. There was even a guy used to go around on the talk show circuit The Reverend Bud Green. Anybody remember him? He started his own religion where, you know, it was about smoking pot. There's a church in Denver where instead of communion, you know, juice and the bread, their communion is smoking pot. It's in Denver, Colorado. Does this sound like what Paul's saying in Ephesians 5.3? There must not even be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. But unless we talk about this, unless we study it, we preach it, we teach it, how are people supposed to know? In my own life, I, you know, again, it's not just the responsibility of the pastor. Every one of us has a responsibility. But I can remember going through things in my life and thinking, man, I don't know if I ever heard the pastor say that, teach that, preach that. I wish I would have heard that before I did this. Have you, ever, have you ever been in that place? Now, again, we have a responsibility to study for ourselves and read for ourselves. But in Ephesians 4, it says he's given apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, and evangelists for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. God expects us all to spend time in his word, but he's also raised up men and women in the church to teach, to lead, to help. And I don't ever want to be in that place where somebody says, well, I wish you would have taught that. I wish you would have told me that because now I blew it. And it's your fault, Pastor. (laughs) I don't ever want to hear that. And so week in and week out, I'm going to do my best to bring you the whole counsel of God. Because then if you go out and blow it, at least you know you blew it knowing you blew it. Get it? Better that we don't blow it. Sadly, I think we're way beyond the hint stage. There must not be even a hint of these things, Paul writes, in the church. We're way beyond the hint stage in today's church. I remember years ago having a conversation with someone who was involved in a big singles ministry, you know, and that was a big thing I don't know how, how it is now, you know, in some of these, the mega churches, the big churches, if they still have the big singles ministries or if it's some new thing. But the discussion was how so often these singles ministries just become a, a meat market, a place to go and look for a hookup, if you know what I mean. The whole idea of the church today is to separate everybody, divide everybody. I was going to finish, but I'm just on a roll here, so... 
The big move in the church today is to separate and divide. Gee, last time I read the Bible, who does that? The devil. Oh, well, you don't have a singles group? I can't go to your church. You don't have a young adult group? I can't go to your blah, 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 blah. And everybody wants to be compartmentalized and separated. Do you think that's God? One of the hallmarks of the Jesus movement was people of all ages gathering together. Long hairs, short hairs, some coats and ties. Chuck Gerard, Little Country Church, great song. People looking past the hair and straight into the eyes because in those days long hair was a big thing. You know, it was counterculture. But I went to home fellowship groups with people from my age, like 18, 19, all the way up to 60, 70, 80 years of age. I never had the thought of, I don't want to be around all these old people. Because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Your gender, your age, your color, none of that should even matter. You mean you don't have an LGBTQ, DQ, hot fudge fellowship in your church? We have women's Bible study, men's prayer. We have some things like that. But I think the more the body comes together as a whole, the better it is. Anyway, that wasn't part of the message, but I just threw it in there at the end. We're way beyond the hint stage in today's church, and it all goes hand in hand, folks. Let me make this final point. We're still actually kind of on time. False teaching, this all goes hand in hand. This is why we are where we are today in the church. And again, the last transformational impact the church has on the world, the worse the world is going to get because the church, the body of Christ, all those filled with the Holy Spirit, God intends to be a restraining force on the world. Did you realize that? Talk about pro-life versus pro-death, pro-abortion. What if there were no believers? Would there be any resistance to abortion? I think not. That's just one example. We are supposed to be a restraining force. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. But what if the salt has lost its potency, its savor? What if it's all just dried up, shriveled up, it's no longer of any use or effectiveness? These things go hand in hand. False teaching, division, Deception and immorality. And what is it called? It's called Gnosticism. It's called antinomianism. Jude was dealing with it in the first century, and it's still around 2,000 years later and growing. But we will stand firm, will we not? Let's stand. Father God, it's been kind of a heavy subject matter today, but we thank you because we need to know the truth so that we can remain in the truth, so that we can walk in the light as you are in the light and have fellowship one with another. 
And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from every sin. If we walk in the light as you are in the light. Lord, help us please, Father, to exhibit your love, your grace, your mercy to a dying world. But Lord, help us to never, ever compromise, back down, give in, cave in. We're not helping anybody, Lord, when we do that. Lord, your word must be our guiding light, your truth. Because otherwise we will be like the Pharisees. We will be like the blind leading the blind. Lord, we want to lead them to you. And help them break the chains of bondage in their lives, whatever it might be. Whether it's drugs or alcohol or sexual immorality, the list goes on and on. There are so many people on our planet that are dying. They're in bondage. They're lost. And Lord, we've got to keep our light shining bright so that they can see that light and come to the light. So help us, Father, we pray. These are strong words. That there must not even be a hint of these things in our lives. The sexual immorality, any kind of impurity or greed. Lord, we confess before you right now, we do fall short. We have sinned and come short of your glory, but we ask you to forgive us, to wash us, to cleanse us, to renew us, and help us to stay on the right path so that we can lead others to you, Lord. Thank you for the healings that we heard about today. We praise you, we thank you, we magnify your name. And we pray for others that are still in need of healing, that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon them, even this very day in these closing moments. If there's anyone, Father, who needs salvation, that they would receive Christ today as Lord and Savior. Lord, you know every heart, you know every need. We ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit in these closing moments. In Jesus' name, amen.